Grab your Bible, would you please? Let's go over to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is what we're interested in. And follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Revelation chapter 5, we're interested in verses 1 through 10. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each holding a harp. And gold bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they all shall reign on the earth." There are a lot of Christians who face a considerable amount of discouragement, heartache, and loss. Uh, my wife and I live in the Santa Clarita area. If you've been watching the news recently, you know about the sand fire. Now it's consumed 22,000 acres. It's 10% contained. Um, over 1,000 homes have, have been affected by that fire. Some of them burned completely down. Well, that's just part of living in this world. This world is a temporary world. It's stuff that's here for a short amount of time and then it's gone. That's what Ecclesiastes says when he says vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Things are just like smoke. Uh, the things of this world, even we ourselves are a part of that, are smoke that are, it's only there for a short amount of time and then we're gone. Everything that's part of this world is that way. It would be hard to imagine living in this world without the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing after this for them. This is all there is. And to see its temporalness. Sometimes when I teach in the book of Ecclesiastes... I use the analogy where Ecclesiastes says vanity of vanities all is vanity. The Hebrew term there is haval havalim, haval havalim. It's smoke, smoke, or sometimes I like to say everything is soap bubbles, soap bubbles. It looks really pretty for a short amount of time, and you go, oh, look at that, and it's gone forever. That's the way everything is in this world. 
our relationships, the people around us, our family, our friends, and even ourselves are a part of that big soap bubble that's only here for a short amount of time and then we're gone. And during this time of life, that sh this short time that God gives us on this in, in this world, during that particular time, we have the option of really fulfilling our life by following the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or we can spend it on trying to consume ourselves with our own pleasures and desires. And people go through loss. They will go through loss, discouragement, severe depression in this world, heartache, suffering, So where do you go to find help when that happens to you? Where do you go? In the book, um, a Christian pastor, Todd Burpo, writes that during the months after his emergency surgery in 2003, his son Colton began describing events and people that seemed impossible for him to have seen or met. Examples include his miscarried sister, whom no one had told him about, his great-grandfather who died 30 years before Colton was born. Colton also claimed that he personally met Jesus riding a rainbow-colored horse and sat in Jesus' lap while the angels sang songs to him. He also says he saw Mary kneeling before the throne of God and another time standing beside Jesus. When you hear descriptions like that about heaven, and then you begin to compare them with the descriptions like the Apostle John gives us in the book of Revelation, there's a Sharp, uh, sharp, dramatic contrast because this description of heaven that John gives in Revelation chapter 5 is a description that is, is not a warm one. There is a sense in which when we enter heaven's throne room here, we enter heaven's war room. There is that sense. One critique of this story about Colton calls on believers to get back into the word of God instead of being carried away by every wind of doctrine, criticize the book for its extra biblical and problematic claims, as well as the lack of any medical evidence that the boy was clinically dead during that surgery. They went on to say that the success of the book shows that vast numbers of Americans lack the reasoning ability of adults when they buy those, buy into those kind of theories and stories. But Revelation chapter 5 is radically different. Here we get a picture of God's throne room. And what we have done here with this particular passage is I think this can be naturally broken down into three major parts. For example, the first part would be the throne room's disqualification. 
That's verses 1 through 4. And the second part is the throne room's salvation. That's beginning in verse 5 and runs all the way through verse 8. And then the third part is the throne room celebration. The throne room celebration. So I want to take a look at this, these three parts, and break them down for you, especially if you're one of those Christians that are here today and you're discouraged and you're disheartened. Let's take a look at the first four verses, the throne room's disqualification. We enter into one of the most amazing and I believe thrilling scenes in all the book of Revelation. The whole plot of the apocalypse has been really building up to this particular point. Every dazzling view of heaven until now is now riveted on what happens next. If the crucifixion was the apex of redemptive history, then these heavenly events are the dramatic result. So you'll notice in verses 1 and 2 that John speaks of a scroll, and this scroll has seven seals to it. Let me make a few observations about the scroll. Number one is this. There was a scroll in the right hand of God with seven seals and with writing on the inside and on the outside. So our attention in this particular vision that God, John has is to the right hand of God. And the description indicated that his right hands were held palm up. But in it was this book or scroll with seven seals. In the first century, important and official documents were intended for select people. And as a result of that, they were often sealed with wax or a clay seal. And the king's signet ring was used to make an impression in the soft wax or clay. And it was allowed to harden then. So it was a serious offense, punishable often by death, for anyone to break the seal that didn't have prior permission from the king. This particular scroll has seven seals. That's significant because seven seals indicate the idea of perfection as well as high importance. So the scrolls as well in the first century had writing on the outside which revealed the subject of the contents on the inside. We have very similar things with our books today. When you look at the binding of a book, there's a writing on the front cover of the book, and there is a writing on the side of the book, so that when it's sitting there on the shelf, you immediately can read what the contents of that book is. And the similar way, in those scrolls in ancient times, they had writing on the inside and writing on the outside, and the writing on the outside indicated what was in the inside. So it was obvious to everyone who saw the writing on the outside as to what this scroll was about. So the question is, what was this scroll about? There's a second observation we need to make here. This scroll is undoubtedly a war contract 
detailing God's redemption of all of creation through his final judgment. It is a war contract. The prophet Ezekiel gives us a clue from his vision in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And there Ezekiel records, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And he spread it out before me. It was written on the front and the back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Now, it was obvious to the apostle John and all the hosts of heaven, that this scroll contained this lamentation, mourning, and woe from the external writing on this scroll. In other words, they understood this to refer to God's final judgment of this world. In other words, this scroll contains the war plans of God to finally and permanently dispatch evil. There's a third thing I want you to see about this scroll. This scroll is also the title deed of creation, identifying Jesus Christ as having the rightful inheritance of all of creation. You see, it was more than a war plan. It was a contract that demonstrated that Jesus Christ alone has the inheritance rights to the heavens and the earth, to the universe, it was an inscribed contract deed to everything in the created domain. There's a fourth thing. In addition to that, a mighty angel loudly issues a defiant challenge. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And the original language here is very, very precise, very clear. Uh, this was a loud challenge for any created being to step forward and to claim the right to be able to open the scroll. But fear strikes them silent. And for the first time throughout all eternity and all the ages, an ominous silence descends on heaven. This is remarkable especially since the fact that there is music and singing and praise and worship that's going on before the throne of God continually through all the ages. And all of a sudden now, everything falls into absolute silence. This is a place where there is continual praise, glorious sounds of worship, that ring through heaven eternally and there was only this definite, deafening quietness that was left. Was no one worthy to step forward and take the scroll from the right hand of God and break the seals? And the longer the silence went on, the more desperate the apostle John becomes. Now look at verses 3 and 4. Not only do we have the scroll, but we have now deep sorrow over the entire disqualification. In contrast to the glorious praise and worship, 
at the end of chapter 4 of Revelation, we see despondency and sorrow. There is deep despair that covers the heart of the Apostle John. There is this extremely emotional and dramatic response. There is silence in heaven because no one is qualified to either open or even to look upon the writing of this divine contract. No one is qualified throughout the universe or heaven. No creature is qualified, no matter how righteous they may feel. You can also sense the shallow pretense of universal self-righteousness begin to melt away at that particular point because no one would dare to step forward and take this scroll from the right hand of God as he presents it because it would mean their immediate death. Well, after a search of the entire universe, no one was found worthy to even open the scroll or read its contents. Both men and angels had fallen into sin. Everyone was disqualified, no matter how righteous they may be. Even righteous angels that had not fallen into sin did not feel worthy to step forward in order to take this scroll. No wonder there was this deafening silence that descended in all of heaven. At this point, the Apostle John describes how he begins to uncontrollably sob because of the severe disappointment. A dark desperation fills John's heart. We're not told exactly what John was thinking, but it was obvious that he begins to believe that injustice and evil will be permitted to prevail on this earth. When you study this in the broader context of Revelation, that has to be what is going through John's mind. Is God going to allow injustice, evil, suffering, loss, despair, now reign over the entire created domain where there is now no hope at all left for mankind? Is that the issue? And he begins to cry. He begins... He begins to sob and don't mistake the fact and somehow think that John himself is some kind of weakling. He is not a weakling. John is a man's man. This is a guy who doesn't cry e easily, but this guy breaks down in uncontrollable sobbing. This dark desperation fills John's heart. His care and his love for the church, God's people, for creation, as it strains under the weight of evil, bears down on John's heart. This is driving him to deep despair and incredible anguish. And the language of verse 4 reveals that he can un uncontrollably sobs. I wonder if you've been to that point in your spiritual life where you came to such deep disappointment that you uncontrollably sobbed. There is no hope. Well, he is sorrowful 
not just because there is no one who is qualified to open the scroll, but because he understands the full implications of a failure to deal a final blow to evil. He understands the implications of this. This is not about John or his personal concerns for himself. Don't think that somehow he is focused on his welfare here, and that's the reason why he is uncontrollably sobbing. That's not the idea at all. If you think that, you totally miss what's happening here. This man is a caring under-shepherd of God's flock. He loves God's people, and he understands that if no one opens this scroll based upon the writing on the outside that reveals its contents, then justice will not prevail. Righteousness will not be established in this created domain. The kingdom of God that had been launched spiritually would not be actualized physically. Vengeance would not belong, belong to the Lord, and human history will not see ultimately its rightful conclusion. This was awful. This was the most worst news ever to John from John's perspective. This dream or vision that John has of heaven now has turned into a horrible nightmare. Aren't we glad that the text doesn't end there, huh? Let's pick up in verse 5. Now we transition from the disqualification to heaven's salvation. Look at verse 5 carefully. The story turns in dramatic fashion. Desperation is turned to delight. Sorrow is replaced by solace. Anguish is vanquished by assurance. John's heart now is stilled. And in verse 5, we find out that our apostles' despondency is premature because ultimate redemption will not come from creation but it'll come from the creator. Ultimate redemption is not going to come from creation. It's going to come from the creator. Finally, there is one qualified to step forward. It's a bold thing to step before God and to take anything from his hand, much less a scroll that has seals, and assume that you have the right to take it, to open it, and even to read it. One of the 24 elders before the throne has to instruct John that there is one qualified to do it. So here we find in verse 5, this elder commands John to cease his sobbing because the Lion of Judah has overcome and is qualified to open the scroll and to read it. And when he speaks to John, he does so in a very commanding manner. It is in the imperative voice. He says to John very simply, hey, stop sobbing. Stop sobbing. We see this elder rebuking John in this particular passage. And why is it that John should stop? Well, the reason is given in verse 5 by this elder, because the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. The fact that he is alive makes him an overcomer, 
or better, a conqueror. And the cross, the cross of atonement was the key. When Satan placed Christ on the cross, it was his greatest tactical error, for he took part at that point in his own defeat. He took part in his own defeat. This fierce, dominant, aggressive lion described in verse 5 is Jesus Christ himself, and he will be leading the war campaign against evil. Now notice this. There are two qualifiers to this lion. First, he is of the tribe of Judah. Judah was a warring tribe. And the lion's military prowess and dominance is emphasized here over his enemies. He was a lion of the tribe of Judah. Second qualification, he is the root of David. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4 and verse 10. All is a messianic text and in these messianic references the Messiah is seen as destroying all of his people's enemies the enemies of Israel and by extension the enemies of all of God's people throughout all the ages it is the job of the Christ who is Jesus to destroy the nations and his chief weapon is the cross he wages war against evil and injustice, and the cross, a seemingly unlikely weapon, is comprehensively effective. At the cross, the enemies of God are defeated. This qualifies him now to take and to open the scroll. Look at verse 6. There's an amazing picture here of a slain lamb. Do you see that? There's an amazing picture of a slain lamb. So this brings you and I to a significant twist in the storyline. This lion is also a lamb, and it is the lamb that now becomes the central figure of the entire book of Revelation from this point on. But there is something unusual about this lamb. Instead of seeing the Lion of Judah, John sees a lamb that possessed the evidential marks of sacrificial slaughtered lamb. In fact, the original language gives a very graphic picture here. There between the throne and the cherubim and the 24 elders stood a lamb that had been slaughtered. And the key word there in verse 6 is standing. Do you see that? Standing, meaning it was a slaughtered lamb that was standing alive. It had been dead because it had been slaughtered, but now it is standing near God's throne. This is a remarkable sight. This is unbelievable. And this is something that had never happened in all of redemptive history. All the previous lambs that had been slain never stood up again. This lamb does. And the term used in the Greek that specifically identifies the lamb to be 
a young or small lamb. This is not an old lamb. This is a young, small lamb. The Old Testament apocalyptic imagery of the Paschal lamb. This is like the Paschal lamb. It was the perfect lamb of the flock that was to be sacrificed. And oftentimes that meant a young lamb. By the time the lambs got larger or grew older, they became imperfect. So usually the Paschal lamb was a young lamb. This is a young lamb standing before the throne with all the marks of having been slaughtered, but yet it is alive. Hmm. There are a lot of references throughout the Old Testament of the Paschal Lamb, but in none of these references does the Lamb come back to life and is seen standing again. The whole Passover system flashes before John's eyes, but that was a mere shadow of this new reality, and John, as an apostle, understood it well. Here is this young Lamb now standing as having been slaughtered before the throne of God. And there are three unique apocalyptic features of this lamb. Look at what he says in verse 6. The first is that it's a slaughtered lamb that is standing alive. And the fact that that lamb is standing alive brings an end to all slaughter... He's the only one to have conquered death. That's the implication. The second, he's a slaughtered lamb with seven horns. The seven horns here, in the ancient world, horns meant power and strength. So in Revelation, uh, horns are seen in the same way. They are seen as having great power, great strength. In fact, these are seven horns, so it means strength in perfection. Strength in perfection. Here is a young lamb standing that had been slaughtered, and it has seven horns, which means strength in... in this is not a weak lamb now here. Strength in perfect strength. This speaks of his omnipotence. And then it talks about the fact that slaughtered lamb also has seven eyes. In other words, this clarifies his perfect all-seeing ability. He is not only omnipotent, he is also omniscient. He knows all, he sees all. There is nothing that he does not see since seven is the number of perfection throughout Scripture and especially in the book of Revelation. It's a way of describing God's a perfect eyesight, his perfect knowledge of all that is. The seven eyes of the Lord, Zechariah 4.10, range throughout all the earth. There's nothing that he misses. That is an incredible comfort for you and for me because he sees all the sufferings of God's people and he does not miss any of it. Whatever you go through in your life, Whatever difficulty that you encounter, especially as regard to your testimony for Jesus Christ, it is Christ that sees that because he has this omniscient eyesight. He sees it all. He absolutely misses nothing. And it ranges throughout the earth. He has perfect vision of everyone throughout all time of all the earth. 
the living slaughtered lamb demonstrates through his omnipotence as well as his omniscience that he has this, the right to take the scroll. Look at verse 6 again. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. Now the seven spirits of God is a reference now to the fact that he is omnipresent. Not only is he omnipotent, he is omniscient, but he is omnipresent. There is no place you can go without him being there. There's no place on this earth or in the heavens or in the universe that you can go without his presence being there. They, the seven spirits, he is spiritually everywhere. And all these aspects of the triune God then are actively portrayed in the very war room of heaven. It's a militaristic scene, but Christ has conquered not with the sword. He has conquered with sacrifice. That's the slain lamb. Now look at verses 7 and 8. All these are so critical because this is where the scroll is taken. At last, verse 7, and I want you to understand that verse 7 is the pivotal verse in the entire book of Revelation. Everything in the book of Revelation hinges on verse 7. If verse 7 doesn't take place, then nothing else happens in all the book. Nothing else happens. This is the key thing. Everything stands on the knife edge here. And so in verse 7, it says, And he went, this young, slain, slaughtered lamb, who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He alone was worthy to do that. Everything in Revelation up to this particular point has been building to this, and everything after verse 7 is based upon it. The slaughtered lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of God, and by taking the scroll, you understand that there is a transfer of authority from God to the lamb. This is an investure of authority from the, tri the, the, God, the uh, Father God to his son, Jesus Christ. The lamb now takes control of all the affairs left to be settled in heaven and on earth. Now he's released to exercise and execute the father's reign over all the earth. And as he breaks the seals, he inaugurates this carefully planned judgment throughout the universe. Once and for all, all the saints, you and I, will be vindicated. Everyone in heaven understands how important the transference of this authority and this power is. Now look at verse 8. Verse 8 then goes on and says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the throne, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Immediately, immediately after doing this, 
Heaven burst into spontaneous worship because the long-awaited defeat of evil and satanic rule will be finally realized because of the divine lamb. And the apostle John is part of this unbelievable burst of worship. If you've ever seen the apostle John with bipolar behavior, it's here. From uncontrollable sobbing to this unbelievable jubilant joy over the fact that the lamb now has taken the scroll and now he alone is worthy to open the scroll. There is this sudden change back in chapter 4 verses 8 through 11 describes a similar scene but now this is much more robust the hosts of heaven have long understood the need to bring an end to all the reign of evil the injustice that occurs on this in this world it to bring it to an end its fate is sealed on the cross but it has not been fully realized until now. Up to this particular point, it's like, if we were to use the illustration of World War II, it's like living between D-Day and V-Day. When all the Allied forces finally established a beachhead in Normandy, for all intents and purposes, the backbone of the German army was broken. It was just a matter of time. But there still was a lot of war to be fought. Same thing's true with the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ was D-Day. The backbone of Satan, evil, and sin was broken at the cross of Jesus Christ. But there is a final consummation down in the future that's V-Day when the final armistice is signed and the last weapons of sin are laid down. We live between D-Day and V-Day. That's where we live. And that's exactly what is going on in this world today. The backbone of sin has been broken, but there is a final future fulfillment where everything in all of the earth and all the injustice and all the unrighteousness and all the wickedness will finally be put down and righteousness will reign forever. We live between that D-Day of the cross and the V-Day of Christ's final destruction of evil at the end of this age. So notice this in verse 8. The four cherubim, the 24 elders, fall prostrate um, before the lamb while holding harps and bowls symbolizing all the prophecies ever made and all the prayers ever prayed. Finally, they're fulfilled the harps are ancient lyres with 10 to 12 strings used frequently by the Jews in the temple worship to accompany hymns. It's also added an element of joy to the worship. The gold bowls were used in the temple for incense. Only here the incense is the prayers of the saints, the text says. Your prayers now are a sweet-smelling aroma they are incense rising up before God. In other words, you can't avoid the incense. It, 
when, when you smell something that's an aroma, that's a pleasing aroma, it turns your head, it focuses your attention. This is what the prayers of the saints do in relationship to God. It is a sweet-smelling aroma and smell that rises up before him, and it draws his attention to you and what's going on in your life. These golden bowls are all the prayers of the saints. And this is especially true of the prayers of the saints that are rising up under the persecution of the, first, of the future tribulation. They are the petitions brought before God by his saints who suffer in this world of sin. And God is now responding actively to those prayers by sending this judgment. And while falling down before the throne of God, holding the harps and the golden bowls, they burst out in singing into this heavenly hymn of praise Listen, heaven is no longer silent. That deafening silence is now gone. It's been dispatched. Let's take a look then. It's this third part, heaven's celebration. Verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, there's the singing of a new song. It's hard to imagine the perfect pitch and sound of heaven's choir, but this must be a glorious sound to John's ears. If I were John, I would have wanted to join in and, and to sing, but I would have probably ruined it. But it's very clear. John doesn't know the words because it's a new song. The new song of praise is understood to be throughout Scripture the song of redemption. Psalm 33 and verse 3, Psalm 40 and verse 3, Psalm 96 and verse 1, Psalm 98 and verse 1, all talk about this song. It is a hymn that is focused on the salvific work of the Lamb, the slaughtered Lamb. He alone is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. And heaven's hosts now recognize the slaughtered Lamb's worthiness to take the scroll, break the seven seals in order to bring a war of final judgment upon the enemies of righteousness. And it's the lamb that has gained the victory. Not with a sword, but with sacrifice. He has owned death, defeated the central weapon of Satan. He has done this without any sin, without resorting to Satan's methods or schemes. He has faced all of Satan's fury, and he has come forth as a slaughtered lamb alive and well. So he's uniquely qualified to bring this final battle right to Satan's doorstep. The slaughtered lamb shed his blood to redeem not only the Israelites, but Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what verse 9 says. Heaven understands the new covenant. Both Jews and Gentiles will be included in this new covenant. It includes all types of men from every tribe and nation all over the world. That's really critical. The cherubim and the 24 elders break out in glorious chorus of praise to the slaughtered lamb. Now look at verse 10. There's a reference to the fact that the saints are priests. We'll stop there at verse 10. Wish I could go on, but we'll stop there. Verse 10 is the story of rain. 
The atoning work of the slaughtered lamb not only removed ethnic barriers between believing Jew and Gentile, but now it also removes hierarchical barriers by making all saints into a kingdom of priests. That's significant. Under the Old Testament system, only a very select few were chosen to be priests to represent the people before God. But now, because of the work of the Lamb, all New Testament saints are now priests. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. Every believer has access before God. You can bring your concerns, your petitions, your needs, your own worship directly to him. And he views all of that as a sweet incense that rises up to him. This is all made possible because your sins have been covered by the blood of the slaughtered lamb. All of that rises up before God. You can do that. There is no longer need of any human intermediary. That's the reason why we're not Roman Catholic. No need for a select section of priests. A pastor is not a priest. He's just one of you that studies the word of God and delivers the word of God, but he's not a priest. That is, a priest that's any different than you being a priest. He is a priest in God's eyes, but you're a priest in God's eyes if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And notice this, where once the saints have been rejected and persecuted on the earth, we, that's something that the first the seven churches of Revelation talk about in verse, uh, chapters 1 through 3. They're now destined to reign over all the earth, all because of the atoning work of this slaughtered lamb. The saints rule. We will bring the final reign of God upon the earth where justice and truth will be ultimately known. The saints, you and I, will sit on thrones judging the earth and this promise now relates to both the millennial reign as well as the new heavens and new earth. God's people will be kings serving our Lord and ruling over all of his creation with his reign. Why? All of that is because of the slaughtered lamb who now has accomplished all of this, not with sword, but with sacrifice. Now you understand why John goes from a state of sobbing to a state of rejoicing. Whatever you're going through, dear friend, whatever it is, whatever discouragement, setback, or loss that you've experienced, someday all of that injustice and all of that wickedness, all that you've suffered because of the testimony of Jesus Christ will be dealt with once and for all by the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, slaughtered lamb who will take the reins of history and bring about final righteousness and truth. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, that is an encouragement to us as your saints, as your priests, as believers. We pray that you will help us to get a bigger picture 
there is a sense in which we as believers are bigger picture people, fully understanding what you intend to do throughout the ages and how you need how you intend to bring the wickedness and injustice and ungodliness that are a part of this world to a final end and so that righteousness will reign. And it will reign under the sovereign work of a loving, slaughtered lamb. Father, may that encourage our walk even today. This we pray in Christ's name. Please stand and let's sing one more song together.